Read David Copperfield next. Well, well, that's the thing. I don't like stupid orphans during Dickensian times. That's not a stupid orphan story. <laughs> I, the other thing is I just wrapped them all up in the the, the realm of that. Um, yeah. Okay, well, maybe. first of all, <laughs> yeah, that's I, reductive, this is, this and I'm a, mad at you about it. <laughs> this is a me. I recognize that this is all a me problem, not a, like, Dickens problem. Oh, my um, God. Do you read Russian literature? Yeah, I mean, I I famously finally succeeded in, in reading War and Peace, and I loved it. Okay. Um, then, then pick one, pick a Dickens book, and read it. <laughs> yeah, the book is called A Christmas Carol, and it's great. <laughs> I'm so mad right now. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> the thing about his orphan books is that he's obsessed with class issues. Peter, mm. you are also obsessed mm. with class issues. This is true. This is a that's true what, statement. That's what they're about. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, Martha Sullivan, library manager, and once again, party host. (laughs) Yay! And I am joined, as always, by my co-host. I'm Pete Romberg, party goer. And... Uh, listeners, we had the rare opportunity to uh, actually host a holiday celebration in the flesh because all of my friends are vaccinated and sensible human beings. And it was so good. It was so good. It was the triumphal return of, of Martha's annual beer party, which had a uh, uh, unintentional but necessary hiatus last year. It did. I was on like a five or six year in a row streak. And then, you know, our, our and a global good, pandemic. Happened. Good sir pandemic. <laughs> our old but friend anyway, COVID. We are not here to talk about beer. That's a separate podcast idea. Hmm. We are here tonight to talk to you all about historically anachronistic film and video properties. Uh, we are going to dive into A Knight's Tale and the Hulu original The Great. But first, we're going to kick it off with our usual What is Stuck in Our Head segment. This is where we take the opportunity to talk to each other about a piece of pop culture or media that we cannot get out of our heads and are just itching to talk about. Pete, please sell me on your Stuck in Your Head. Because I'm skeptical. All right. Uh, what is stuck in my head is uh, Amazon Prime's original TV show, A Wheel of Time. Uh, Wheel of Time is based on the 14 doorstopper volume fantasy series by Robert Jordan and finished by Brandon Sanderson of the same name. Um, it is about a, a world where uh, there is magic, but only women can use that magic. Because if men try to use that magic, they go crazy. Uh, the Dark One, the evil bad guy, has tainted the source of magic for, for men, um, and so that that is in the background. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the, the Dark One is trying to escape from his prison. Uh, Moraine, a member of the Only Women, uh, you know, or, or magic-using organization, uh, derogatorily called witches, known in the universe as Aes Sedai, uh, is looking for the reincarnation of... The Dragon, a incredibly powerful uh, male magic user who millennia ago broke the world uh, through using his magic and going crazy uh, and is prophesized to have been reborn 
and through his rebirth will defeat the Dark One once and for all. Uh, she's found a handful of potential uh, people who might be the Dragon Reborn, all from a sleepy little town called the Two Rivers. Um, and so we're doing some some fun fantasy stuff uh, as we we whisk our our young potential heroes off to uh, you know the the headquarters of the Aes Sedai and then further out into the world. Uh, the series star stars uh, Rosamund Pike as Moraine and a handful of newcomers as are, uh, you know, potential Dragon Reborn newcomers. Uh, it also stars Sophie Okonedo as Swan Sanche, the sort of uh, the leader of the Aes Sedai organization. Um, it is... It, this is a, a... When Amazon announced that they were going to make Wheel of Time, my first thought was like, okay, so you want to do Game of Thrones? Cool. My second thought was, uh, this is going to be literally impossible to adapt because it's 14 books and they're each like 800 pages, so great. Uh, but also the books in the middle are really slow and sloggy. Um, and so if, if the showrunners have a good sense of how to cut and trim and really cut this down to maybe eight seasons, <laughs> which is still incredibly ambitious, um... You know, they might be able to tell a pretty fun and interesting story. So far, they've done a good job at both maintaining a good thrust of the original book, while also doing a lot of changes. Uh, the last episode I watched, which is not the last episode to air, um, was almost entirely new content not in the original book. Uh, it, because we're condensing things and, and changing things around, so uh, through that process, we end up with a lot of new stuff that feels like it it is from the book and it feels like it's part of the piece and of the world um but isn't so that was fun to me as a book reader uh to sort of experience um the acting ranges from fine to rosamund pike uh who is obviously incredible in every scene she's in um the costume designs and the effects and the sets and everything uh range from fine to actually pretty good uh and it's it's a fun like i don't think it's good as the witcher but if you are interested in hanging out with another fantasy show, uh, either before The Witcher drops this upcoming Friday or after you're done with that, Wheel of Time is a good one to, to just hang out in. It's, it is fun, pleasing fantasy. Uh, it plays into some tropes and subverts others. Um, and luckily, it is, it, the show appears to be sidestepping some of the worst parts of the book, which is some serious men is from Mars, women are from Venus, um gender uh like maximalism um the book is doing a or the, the show is doing a lot of not that uh which is really really fun to see um i also uh my wife marin who has not read any of the books is enjoying it so far so there we go here's my problem and this probably would bother me less in a filmed format than it does on the written page mm-hmm I looked up a wiki summary of oh, these yeah. books. Don't do that. <laughs> well, see, here's the problem. It's all my brain, my brain has a hard limit on the amount of fantasy made up names and language I can deal with before yeah. my brain just shuts off. The the Wheel of Time series, like the book, has over a thousand named characters. And they all have names with at least one apostrophe in them. Or at least many of them do. Um... Can we throw in like a James in there? Like there, there's a Matt with one T. Uh, there's a Tom. Okay, there's a Tom with an H. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, well, and see, this is this is why I think it would probably bother me less on the page. I listened to a series of audiobooks once mm-hmm. where all of the names as spoken sounded like totally cromulent regular names. Yeah. I read the last one because when it came out it wasn't available as an audio and I was like, "Hold up. <laughs> You're spelling this how?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm looking at the show's wiki right now and I'm seeing uh, a character named Ivan and you're like, "Okay, Ivan." I-H-V-O-N. Like, mm, why? Why? Mm, why? Mm. <laughs> um, so, and also, just as you're describing it, my brain is also going, of course the Chosen One is a dude. Like, uh, In the show, that's unknown. Uh, it, the, the the potential Dragon Reborn are, there There are five of them, of which uh, two of them are women, and three of them are dudes. Um, okay, so I guess my question to you is why... Is it in the in in the book? Is it specific that the in the book the magical I mean, like, one they're looking for is a do you, I mean you I, you I, just I, said I, very specifically that like she's so, out looking for the boy and yeah. I was like mm. so that like in in the book like in the first half of the first book it's a little bit of a like who could it be but also the only point of view character of our of the three people is like the guy who it ends up being. So it's a bit of a, it, also it's like, everyone has a, dis, like, there's the, the rakish rogue guy. There's the, the blacksmith with, who's like concerned about his own strength. There's the, the daughter of the mayor who's like, you know, uh, so, sort of a, a cool, like, she's super cool. There's the, the town's wisdom, which is sort of like the, the wise woman, medicine woman, who's very young and is sort of grappling with that, that tension of like, she's the youngest wisdom in ages. And then there's generic farm boy. And you're, it's, you're like, hmm. Which of these characters has no personality? He's probably the important one. <laughs> and also, in before anybody wants to complain to me about it, I also have this problem with Dune. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. don't don't come at me with any sort of double standard here. The thing I'll say about um, The Wheel of Time is that the world building is, like, I have yet to read a fantasy that goes deeper or hard. Like, Brandon Sanderson stuff is the only thing that comes close to a world as fully realized as this. And it has a bit of the problem of all fantasy of, like, everyone from Terabon is like this, but everyone from Giladon is like this. Um, and that's, like, you kind of so have to... Racist. Well, not in a, I mean, I was doing the 1980s stand-up <laughs> thing, but, like, you do that in a fantasy to, like, make it simple. But then there are, like, dozens of kingdoms where everyone is a little bit different. So it, it becomes a very... Um, a very dense and well-built world with a lot of, like, internal consistency and history. Uh, which, by the time, like, once you are in book six and you're, like, invested in it, um, it makes for a really fun read. It also leads to exhaustingly long books. And in a show, a lot of that can just be in the background. It can be in the architecture or the clothing um, or, you know, we're we're just singing a song as we're walking and Moraine sort of explains the meaning behind that song a little bit. And, and it's a fun little scene. Um, so a lot of that sort of, world building heavy lifting just lives in the like in the in the built environment of the show which helps smooth like push push the plot forward a little more i will probably watch this after the witcher drops and i have watched the new witcher and i'm in sort of a fantasy yeah mindset it's not where my brain is right now right Mm -hmm. now it just feels exhausting yeah (laughs) i'm glad that you are enjoying it i've heard generally very good things Love Rosamund Pike, so glad to see her out and about. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I just, I don't know that my brain is in it yet. No, absolutely. And and for someone like you, this should not be a like, like I'm not watching them as they drop, but I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm once it started, once it dropped, I'm like, all right, like, let's, let's start getting into this. Um, sure. But for someone like you, it's like, yeah, at some point, maybe during some downtime during the holiday season, like, yeah, go, go sit on the couch for a couple hours and watch a couple hours of absolutely fine fantasy, you know? <laughs> Aggressively fine. Uh -huh. It also feels a little bit like a trial run for Amazon's Lord of the Rings. Um, so oh, I, I okay. guess take, take that as a, as a piece of information. Yeah, which that I'm still not sure how I feel about, although right. I will definitely be watching like, it yes, so i guess one... it doesn't really matter <laughs> right yes like curse you bezos <laughs> uh, and and by trail run all i mean is like an expensive fantasy made by the studio that we all know is making an even more expensive fantasy yeah so yeah uh martha what is stuck in your head all right so i have been engaging in attempting to watch a holiday movie every day from thanksgiving to christmas um, I have mostly succeeded. I'm only one or two behind. And one of the things that I have been doing is watching many different versions of A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. I am only watching ones that are new to me because, again, rule of this project is I'm, I'm not watching things that I've never watched before. So what this means is I am not watching or at least I'm not counting mm. when I watch A Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. The thing that I have learned is that a Muppet Christmas Carol is the best one. It truly like, is. <laughs> fully, fully unironic, like fully serious. A Muppet Christmas Carol is the best adaptation of a Christmas Carol in existence. And this story slaps. Yes. Like I love it so much. I read the whole book out loud on Facebook live last year for, as a library program. Mm -hmm. I did it as a like, holiday story time mm -hmm. and i did one chapter a day for five days leading up to christmas eve it was very fun um the story has everything it has ghosts it has punishing rich people it has <laughs> um you know like nostalgia and it's got a romance in there and it it truly is and in like, the canonically best version it has like fozzy bear and gonzo so also you know. true but like the text, I, I what I what I guess I'm trying to say is that the text of it is incredible. It yes. is like unimpeachable. It is great. Yes. A Muppet Christmas Carol could have been a joke if it was made by anybody other than the Jim Henson Company, which mm -hmm. pretty much only make like earnest things. Like everything about this movie is so deeply unironic and yes. sincere. And like Michael Caine is sort of well, famously quoted as when he acted, when he acted in this movie, he treated it like he was in Hamlet. Yes, like he, I, you, you took the, the, the quote directly out of my mouth. <laughs> yes. So he he sort of famously was like, I treated the Muppets like I would have treated actors on a Shakespearean stage. And it shows like his performance is so sincere and so real I have watched several Scrooges now, which vary in terms of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And he gets he gets both the like nightmare abusive boss and also the 
sincerely repentant. Like some of these, some of these Scrooges that I'm watching, it's like, oh, you just don't want to die. Like you're mm, just mm-hmm. afraid of death. Like you, you, you I, are a very good evil Scrooge and a not convincing good Scrooge. Right. Like they're repentant, but they're only repentant because they're afraid of going to hell when they die. Sure. And I think that Michael Caine, like the the heart behind his performance is like at the end of it, he truly believes that he can do better and be better. And that sort of that like emotional sincerity is just so key, I think, to what A Christmas Carol is all about. Mm hmm. That some of these that I have been watching, it's just like, oh, you don't get it. How do you not get it? This is like, in some ways, it's one of the most basic stories ever told because it's so like foundational. Right. Um, but so anyway, I've been, I watched one from the like 1951, which I did enjoy. That one had very good effects. The ghosts were great. I watched a movie called The Man Who Invented Christmas, which is about um charles dickens writing a christmas carol Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i didn't love that one but mostly it's because i know too much about how a christmas carol was published like serially and so the whole story this movie was spinning i was like well that didn't happen right yeah (laughs) like like egregiously that did not happen (laughs) speaking of i i recently read an article about how dickens based like his all all his various christmas things um on his childhood growing up which was like white christmases and stuff and happened Mm -hmm. to be like the coldest decade in britain in like you know 500 years or some nonsense like that so the whole like image that we have of like white christmases and like oh it's so cold and all the rest of it is like based on almost purely based on the fact that like charles dickens happened to be a boy during this decade when it was abnormally cold and then that just became the cultural like version of oh it. yeah yeah i mean it absolutely is true that we celebrate christmas the way that we do because of a christmas carol yeah yeah like before he published that it, it is true that when he was pitching the story people were kind of like who cares about christmas because like, it just wasn't a popularly celebrated holiday i mean it was popularly celebrated in the sense of like yeah you you like have a meal and you get drunk and you have a day off work and that was it uh it right, wasn't it like, wasn't like the thing that it is now right and a lot of that again is because of a christmas carol so Him and the coca-cola just... company <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're not kidding yeah um, but so, yeah, I, I watched one yesterday that was made in 1984 and stars George C. Scott as Scrooge, and it hmm. had some good moments, but I found the whole thing to be really unpleasant and just, like, kind of nasty hmm. in a way. So, yeah, my stuck in my head right now is A Christmas Carol because there are so many ways to that I have seen it be adapted and so many different things that people can emphasize. And at the end of the day, the best version is the one where Kermit the Frog plays Bob Cratchit. <laughs> and that's just <laughs> an unimpeachable truth. The other thing about The Muppet Christmas Carol is um, it came out in 1992 and it was directed by Brian Henson, uh, Jim Henson's son. Jim Henson died in 1990. And and someone sort of pitched uh, Brian Henson on doing Christmas Carol because, quote, Christmas Carol is the greatest story of all time. You should do it. Um, <laughs> and that's that sort of was the seed. So this was the first Muppet movie post Jim Henson. Um, and it's it's just sort of lovely that it is maybe the best Muppet movie uh, and it's the best version of the Christmas Carol. Uh, and I think it is. De- yeah, it is dedicated to him, I think. It um, is. Yeah. So. But yeah, it's just, it's so deeply sincere, and the music is great. It also, 
the the song um that the ghost of christmas present sings like that's my favorite iteration of that ghost Mm -hmm. like he is so great and that song is just so perfectly encapsulating of like the christmas spirit and what we like hope for when we celebrate with our families i don't know his, it just his come I love in it so and know much. me better man is the canonical come in and know me better man like and i'm the voice i hear in my head when i read that on the on the page is that muppet saying it i am listening for that whenever i watch these other iterations and getting quietly disappointed when i don't <laughs> get it <laughs> right because i am also know, also those other iterations for... only have one marley like there's it's not marley and marley it's just one marley <laughs> and they're not played by and they're not played by statler and waldorf so that's two strikes <laughs> uh, statler and waldorf are maybe my favorite muppets and maybe my muppet spirit animals <laughs> you're not that cranky no but you know they're fun <laughs> oh yeah All right, we are going to take a quick recess, and when we come back, we're going to talk about historically anachronistic film. Yeah. And we are back. We went a little off the rails during that uh, particular <laughs> recess, but I'm sure that if Pete wants to use some of that for the cold open, he is more than welcome to. <laughs> so today we are talking about anach- anachronistic mm-hmm. historical film. Uh, and what we mean by that are period pieces or historical movies based on true events or real people that spin their stories or include anachronistic uh, elements. These can be music. These can be, I I guess I should say they are most frequently used aesthetically um, or language, linguistically. Um, That's what we're looking specifically at. There are many other types of anachronisms in movies, and we might get into that. We will get into that a little bit. We will get into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, But we are looking at intentional anachronisms anachronisms someday i will say that right on the first try uh so we are not looking at like the accidental coffee cup in game of thrones uh we are looking at things that were um intentional artistic choices for one reason or another i'm i'm glad you brought that up i was reading through the tv tropes on anachronism stew uh which is one of the tropes that fit this category some of the examples there were like exactly what we want to talk about and some of them were things like in the social network, a can of Mountain Dew uses a newer logo than would have been in around in 2003. And it's like, oh, my God, that's not an anachronism. Shut up. Um, well, I mean, it, 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 is. it is, but it's also like that's that's more like the coffee cup in Game of Thrones thing rather than like that's 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 more of a production flub than. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Pete, why don't you take us really quick through that neat little list of the different kinds of anachronistic media that we could be talking about today? Cool. I so, found that I found that to be a very helpful breakdown. Cool. 
So this was partly through my own thinking and partly looking at a bunch of TV tropes uh, pages about various anachronisms. And I, I sort of thought that there were three, and honestly, this might be four, sort of different kinds of anachronism in film or movies. Um, the first, is, and this is the biggest category, is sort of the lazy, the unintentional, um, uh, like the, the, the simplifying or the rule of cool kind of anachronism. Uh, and that's what you'll find in basically any Ridley Scott historical epic. Um, Gladiator is a great example. The Centurion's armor was not like what they would wear. The 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 Germans, A, wouldn't have been Germans. They were the Marco Manny, and B, they would not have been wearing furs like that. They would not have fought that way. Yeah, like, the, the list goes on and on and on. But also, shut up. None of that matters. It looks cool. And in the public consciousness, it's a bit of an Ouroboros situation where, like, when we think of the Roman army, they look like that. The reason why we think that is because of movies where they look like that. And because there were enough of those movies made in the 50s, now when you make a movie in the year 2000, they have to look like that, because that's what we think about. Um, so there's a bit of a that cycle, but that's that simplifying thing of like, listen, we're telling this story. We understand that that's not how history went down. Like, the Emperor Commodus, A, didn't kill his father Marcus Aurelius, and B, wasn't killed in the Colosseum in front of, like, hundreds of thousands of screaming Romans, right? But... We're not telling history. We're making a movie called Gladiator. Um, so so that's fine that we make all those changes. So either through rule of cool or through simplifying or again, just through like lazy or unintentional. It's like, yeah, we understand that, you know, some of it is either like we understand that they didn't wear full plate armor during the during the, uh, you know, King Arthur period. But it looks cool. And we think of knights in armor. So that or alternatively. Well, we actually had no idea that they didn't wear full plate armor during the King Arthur period. So we put our King Arthur knights in full plate armor because knights, that's what they wear, right? Um, so, like, that's the one kind of anachronism. Uh, the next kind of anachronism is, like, comedy for comedy's sake, and that's Mel Brooks. So, uh, Blazing Saddles, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, History of the World Men Part 1. Yeah, sorry, Men in Robin Tights. Hood, Men in <laughs> Tights. <laughs> <Robin> <laughs> <Robin> <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, I think Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is in that first category. It's in that first one, and that is in the lazy and unintentional and simplifying, because I don't think there's anything cool other than Alan Rickman in that movie. Um, <laughs> uh, right, so Robin Hood, Men in Tights, um, Blazing Saddles, History of the World Part 1. These are all, like, ragingly anachronistic and they know it, and also that's not the point. So if you start dinging them for like, well, you know, actually the Romans didn't have access to cannabis, so they couldn't make a giant blunt and have it be behind the wagon <laughs> as they're escaping. It's like, okay, <laughs> cool. You missed the Thanks. entire point of that scene. <laughs> um, Thanks for being a helper. Right. <laughs> it's also a bad example because they probably did have access to cannabis. But uh, regard regardless, um... Like that that's like we can take any of that and put it in its own bucket because it's obviously comedy. So anything goes. And then the third kind of anachronism is what our homeworks are about and what this topic I think is gonna focus a lot on, and that's what I'm calling tonal anachronism. Um, this is obviously going to lead to practical anachronism because in order to create that tone, you have to change like the actual lived world. But you're doing it not for necessarily for rule of cool, although that might be there, but because you're trying to get the audience into a particular headspace. And the way that you, the filmmaker, decide to do that is by using modern day 
it could be fashion, it could be language, it could be music, it could be um, just mores or situations where um, you're trying to make these people and their experiences relatable. And so you put a veneer of modernity in some way or another in the story set in the Middle Ages or uh, Ancien Regime France or uh, also Ancien Regime uh, Russia. Uh, <laughs> like, say, same exact time period, but Russia. Um, so, y like, you, you're doing things like having, you know, Queen or New Order. Um, you are having a shopping montage. You are... Uh, you know, using modern day language in a way that would never have been used then. But the entire point of it is to get the audience to relate at a at a basic tonal level to the things that would otherwise, you know, put us at a remove of like, it's hard to put ourselves in the headspace of a 15th century peasant because, wow, that's a very different world than right now. But it's easy to put us in the headspace of a sports fan who wants their hero to win. <laughs> You know, so so let's make it a sports movie. Let's use modern music. Let's use wrestling style kayfabe. And let's like, you know, go all out on that. Um, and then I, the audience oh. can get all in. Yeah. So I also think it's important to think about the intent of these movies. Like these these films were not made with the intent to educate. Right. I don't think so. Like a absolute historical accuracy is not the point if it does not serve the story that they're trying to tell and importantly and, none of them go in like at no point during the process like during the during the commercials or the trailers or the um uh like the the advertising campaign is it is it selling itself like it's supposed to be realistic right uh, which is important and at the end of the day if i watch something about Catherine the great and it's not it is not 100% historically accurate, but it is really engaging. At the end of it, I'm still probably going to go, I would like to learn more about Catherine the Great. Mm -hmm. So it's like there are other ways to lead people to the truth of history than worrying over much about like how how historically accurate is this movie about knights and jousting that I'm making? Is it going to engage people enough so that they might seek that information somewhere that is intended to be educational while I can sit over here and be entertaining. Yeah. I, I really, that. I really like that phrase you just used the truth of history. I think that gets to what this sort of anachronism does very well. Um, and I'm kind of going to steal the Stephen Colbert idea of truthiness. Um, these things are not factual. Like these, none of these movies are factually accurate necessarily, but they're kind of like, they're they're truthy of of what the history might have been like uh in a way that that is both engaging and also like hits on like you know the sort of like basic human truth in a way um yeah so we are going to start with the 2001 Heath Ledger vehicle a knight's tale uh, a Knight's Tale was written and directed by Brian Helgeland, and it stars Heath Ledger as William Thatcher, Mark Addy as Roland, Rufus Sewell as Count Adamar, Shannon Sosaman as Jocelyn, Paul Bettany as Joffrey Chaucer, Holla. Laura Frazier as Kate, Alan Tudyk as Watt, Berenice Bejo as Christina, and then a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> James Purfoy as the Black Prince. 
Yes. Yes. Importantly. This was this was one of those movies where if you were anyone at all in the early aughts, your agent probably got you some <laughs> screen time in this movie. Yeah. Um, but this is the story of William Thatcher, who is a uh peasant and a squire who serves um Sir Ector uh until Sir Ector passes away. <laughs> Uh, in the middle of a jousting tournament. Having just been super into a bunch of Arthurian stuff, we all recognize the name Ector as being part of the Arthurian mythos. Yes. So to complete the joust, uh, William puts on his armor, impersonates him, and wins. Um, William realizes that, hey, he's pretty good at this and could potentially win a lot of money, but you need to be a noble to participate in jousts, which he is not. Enter one uh, Jeffrey Chaucer, who offers to forge his nobility papers uh, in order to get him into tournaments uh, in exchange for, you know, a cut of the money. Uh, They have quite a racket going, uh, and eventually William enters a tournament where he he goes up against um, Count Adamar of Anjou. not only for the joust, but also for the heart of fair Jocelyn. He is aided in his uh, quest for joust supremacy by um, the blacksmith, Kate, Mm -hmm. uh, and his buddies, um, Watt and Roland, and of course, Chaucer. Uh, And after, you know, some fits and starts and some cheating and a little bit of match fixing uh, is able to finally um, defeat Count Adamar and win the heart of fair Jocelyn. Uh, and also at some point, the whole audience erupts into a rendition of We Will Rock You by Queen. <laughs> uh, there's also like a break dancing segment uh, during, yes. during a, a fancy Middle Ages dance. So this movie is important uh, because Pete and I were discussing this a little before the episode starts, um, but really this is kind of where you can trace back this movement of anachronistically uh, historical film properties. This came out in 2001, which is the same year as Moulin Rouge, and the aesthetics of that and the attitude of this movie, I think, can be felt through like Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Mm-hmm. Um, you can feel echoes of both of these, I think in the pirates of the Caribbean movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't I, think I sort of, call oh, both them. I, I think of both of them as sort of like both, both this and Moulin Rouge is like MTV history, right? Which is like not yes. disparaging, but just like the, the aesthetics of it are deeply sort of that, that aesthetic. I mean, Guy Ritchie was already doing his own thing at this point, but also, I, I think that you can see the influence of A Knight's Tale in stuff like his uh, Sherlock Holmes movies. Mm-hmm. Um, in his, what's the other one that we were just talking Heck, about? I mean, in his Robin Hood. <laughs> like, sorry, he didn't he do a Robin Hood. He did a King Arthur. That was the... Uh, King Arthur, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he is a little bit more self-serious than this movie is, but also has that definite like rock and roll MTV kind of sensibility mm-hmm. um, that I really think you can trace directly back to this movie and the sort of 2001 MTV um, aesthetic and sense of like filmmaking. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I agree. Yes. Um, I do think it is interesting to talk about the divisions that you kind of laid out at the beginning, because I think there are a lot of people that would lump this one into rule of cool filmmaking, which I don't think gives it enough credit. That's and that's why I like Ridley Scott, I think, is a strong like rule of like the reason why he's doing his stuff is because it looks cool. Um, And and that is like, that's a fine enough reason to do whatever you want to do. You're a filmmaker. You're not making history. You're making historical epics. Um, But this is doing it all like it's doing it all because it's cool. And obviously, at any point when they're like in a night's tale, when the filmmakers had to make a choice between historical realism and the cool option they went with the cool option look at any of their costumes uh like paul bettany's costumes are amazing and i would love to have the uh, one tenth of the charisma to be able to pull off any of the jackets he's wearing but also none of them are are like accurate um but they're all there to service that tone that that feel of like they want this this is a a sports movie where the sport happens to be jousting. And so they want the modern day audience to feel like it's a sports movie, to root for it like a sports movie. And to do that, it's all about massaging that tone um, and, and bringing in as much anachronism as necessary to make us get on the same um, like emotional wavelength as the characters would be. Um, The other side of it, and I was reading this before the show a lot of the the language choices that they made and a lot of the costume design choices, like I was just like, you know, making fun of, of Chaucer's jackets and stuff, but a lot of the design choices they made were fairly accurate for the time period. So it's, it's really like you get the feel that the filmmakers, if they wanted to play this entirely straight and try to make a, a like down the line, historically accurate film, they could have done it. They did their research they just like they had the information in front of them and said, cool, not going to do that. We're going to go with Queen. Um, and that's like so it, it all feels like, like at every moment it is an intentional choice to bring us in and not a, a lazy choice or an ignorant choice. Um, or more importantly, it's not just because it's cool, but it's because it's cool to serve the purpose of getting us on the emotional wavelength of of the characters. Speaking very specifically about the music, I would like to now read a quote from Roger Ebert's review of this movie. How many stars did he give it? I was just about to ask, would you like to guess how many stars he gave this movie? I'll go with the gentleman's three. Three out of four stars. Hey, all right. Okay. Um, so he writes, uh, so Roger Ebert gave the film three stars out of four and argued that the anachronisms made little difference, writing that the director himself pointed out that an orchestral score would be equally anachronistic since orchestras hadn't been invented in the 1400s. In an obituary for David Bowie, culture critic Anthony Lane referred to the film's use of the song Golden Years as the best and most honest use of anachronism that I know of. Mm. I I think it is very clear that the choices that are made in this movie mean something. Like, they were not... they, They are made very strongly for the aesthetic, but they also were made because they make a point about what we as a culture find entertaining and what, what we kind of latch onto. Um, I think it is very, I think it's very important that this is not a direct adaptation of the Chaucerian A Knight's Tale, because honestly, that would be kind of boring. Um, I I don't even know the 
plot of Chaucer's A Knight's Tale. Um, it's, I mean, there's a joust at the center of that. There's two two knights competing over a woman. Uh, sure. There's a lot more presence of, like, Roman gods that they're praying to, to, like, get the things that they want. Roman gods, <laughs> um, really? Yeah, Chaucer, like Venus you saucy and guy. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's not... It's not a one for one adaptation. It is an inspired by and even even Paul Bettany in the movie as Chaucer is like, this gives me an idea. So right. it's not even trying to be like a one for one. Right. Um, Chaucer at the end of the day was writing to entertain people, and this movie is out to entertain people. And I think that the the choices that are made are very deliberate choices to endear us to the characters, to say something about the nature of entertainment and also to like give us a good time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to quote, to quote gladiator, are you not entertained? And the answer is hell yes, this is fun. <laughs> I also don't think like, I, I don't think that um, rule of cool stuff is bad. Like, no, no. Um, I just, I think that there is a difference between we didn't bother looking this up versus we made a deliberate artistic choice because the use of Queen says something about how this audience is connecting to the athletes that they're watching. Right. Right. And that I think is where a knight's tale ends up falling. Right. Yeah. Hard agree. Um, my other thought, and, and you were talking about, you know, the use of, of Bowie's golden years, uh, this coming out the same year as Moulin Rouge is kind of mind blowing because Moulin Rouge is doing the same thing with music of being like, intentionally much more intentionally nod nod and wink and lampshading like but using modern music to convey the the wild rock and roll times of 1890s you know like red light district france uh or paris um i i would truly love to do a whole episode on the works of baz lorman i'm i'm on board uh, <laughs> <laughs> mostly because i really want to rewatch romeo plus juliet uh I was oh watching uh Matrix um spoiler for our next episode topic it's the Matrix uh watching the second Matrix movie with um uh your brother yeah no who's the actor um Harold uh Harold Pernow man I'm gonna I'm gonna blank this and repeat it when I actually know how to pronounce <laughs> his name um Mercutio from uh, Romeo and Plus Juliet uh you're probably right he's also in Lost come on um i never watched lost harold perrineau there we go um paul rudd is in romeo plus juliet okay i definitely everyone's in romeo plus juliet (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so so long story short uh i really want to watch rewatch romeo plus juliet so let's do a baz lorman episode um but like like these two films coming out the same year and using music in such the same way is wild to me um and absolutely gives us Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, which has, again, a perfect use of uh, New Order's Age of Consent in both the trailer and the film to sort of, like, captivate that sort of, like, everything the character should be feeling for the audience. Yes. So, sorry, for you, I'm sure that was a lot of me throwing music <laughs> music out there at you, and you're like, uh-huh, <laughs> No, but I think uh-huh. it's important. Like, like music, music, particularly music in the cinematic sphere, typically tells us what we are expected to be feeling right. at any given moment. Yeah. So musical choices should be very deliberate because they are going to drive, like, what music you choose to play under a sequence is going to change 
how the audience reacts to that sequence. It is the difference between a scene that is tragic or a scene that you're intended to laugh at. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't think it is. um, Well, and, and in addition to that, it's, it's jarring in an interesting way when you have, um, Ewan McGregor singing Elephant Love Medley, like, for in, in, and you're in the audience in the year 2001, and you've never seen this before. Or you're going to a movie called The Knight's Tale with the Middle Ages, and all of a sudden you've got, like, Bowie and Queen. Like, it, there's a dissonance there that really, I think, makes you be like, oh, oh, okay, I get this now. Um, because it's not just a score. Like, it's not just, a, you know, an orchestra, uh, which is what you're expected to to hear when you're watching movies like this. Uh, shall we move on to our next? I think we should. Uh, piece of media. Great. Yeah. Uh, so our next homework assignment was uh, the great, um, a uh, a comedy drama series on Hulu uh, about Catherine the Great uh, before she was Catherine the Great, uh, Empress of Russia. Uh, this was created by Tony McNamara and uh, uh, co-written or written also, I think, by. Tony McNamara, who co-wrote The Favorite, and it stars Elle Fanning as the titular Catherine, uh, Nicholas Holt as Peter III of Russia, huzzah! Uh, Phoebe Fox as Mariel, Sasha Dwan as Count Orlo, um, and a handful of other people. The names keep going. I'm not going to read them. Um, This is, uh, season one is court intrigue. The young and naive Catherine comes from Germany to marry Peter, the emperor of Russia. Um, the rest of the season one is her sort of navigating court politics as first a, uh, a young naive person who doesn't really know what's going on and is also in this new country with new customs and then with increasing ability uh she is very intelligent and has strong progressive opinions on how to fix the country and the rest of the court uh ranges from being in general agreement with her to not um (laughs) (laughs) uh season one ends spoiler alert uh with her attempted coup against her husband peter and season two begins, spoiler alert, uh, basically with that coup succeeding. <laughs> um, and uh, Peter eventually uh, being imprisoned. Um, history spoiler, Peter doesn't uh, survive terribly long into Catherine's reign. Um, there is uh, still disagreement in the historical record about whether he was killed on her orders or whether he got into a drunken brawl with his, one of his prison guards and died that way. Um, can, I, can I interrupt you really quickly? Yes. The beautiful thing about the way that Nicholas Holt plays this character is that I believe either one of those. Yes, absolutely. Like, <laughs> he could absolutely have just been drunk, got in a fight with his guard, and got punched to death or whatever. Yes. <laughs> or stabbed. Uh, and also, it's very possible that, you know, at some point, Catherine's just like, ah, yep. We're done. Okay. We're done here. <laughs> Wait, like, yeah, yeah. No, he's he's too dangerous. <laughs> um, Just by being, like, not because he's dangerous at all. He's not. Uh, But just because he is who he is. Um, I mean, he is kind of. He is, but, you know, like, you could... Nicholas Holt plays him in the kind of way where, like, he might be happy. Not happy in a jail cell, but uh, incompetent enough never to do anything about it on his own. But he has enough supporters and, you know, people who will flock to his banner that that's what makes him dangerous. Um, He also plays him kind of in in a very unpredictable way. Like, you never mm -hmm. quite know how he is going to react to something and sometimes it me it could mean that someone dies. Yeah. 
I, I think Nicholas Holt is a great performer, and this might be my favorite performance of his. Uh, he he has only grown on me since X Men First Class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know that he was the right person to play Beast, but I wasn't mad about it, and I think he has only gotten better. Yeah, since I then. I like him a lot in uh, in X Men, but yeah, I agree with you that he's only gotten better. Um, uh, he's fantastic in Mad Max, and he's uh, also fantastic in The Favorite. So uh, <laughs> there we go. Uh, I know that I was the one who talked you into this. Um, I think springboarding off the favorite being like, if you tolerated that, you'll like the great even more. Well, um, well but the, uh, the reason I had to be talked into it was because I didn't care for the favorite. Right. And I was like, take the parts you didn't like about it out, a.k.a. Yorgos <laughs> Lanthimos, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and said it like, you know, 50 years later. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's riotous good times. Um. Some fun historical, like, not historical anachronisms. Well, okay. This this goes to my, uh, my, my tripartite division. This is the simplifying part of historical anachronism before we get into the, like, tonal anachronism. The actual Peter III was basically a... First off, like, many of the, the rulers of Russia, uh, the, the czars of Russia after Peter the, the Great, uh, Peter I... Thought Russia was backwards and looked to the West and tried everything they could to westernize Russia as they saw it. Um, and Peter was no exception. He was very much a, a German file. Uh, uh, he had a pro-Prussian policy. Say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> and and was like constantly sort of pushing in, in that direction internally and also diplomatically externally. Catherine was German. Um and and also technically Peter the Third was also German. They're all coming from Germany. Um, but Catherine was like born in Germany, raised in Germany, and was ragingly pro-Russian uh, once she became the Empress. Um, and so you like that's sort of some fun, like just interesting political drama that they, for totally obvious reasons, don't get into here because that would make it way too confusing and not really what the show's about. Because the show is about like the court intrigue, you know, like like Catherine versus whomever else she's up against in in whatever one of her ploys that she's she's trying to to make happen um and and so it's less about sort of that that broader international scope i don't know yeah uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I really want to go from there. um so the the this one is kind of tonally linguistically maybe mm -hmm. um it's also anachronistic because I feel like the relationships between the characters are done in a specific way because they are making a TV drama out of it. Yes. Um, I don't know enough about the actual Catherine the Great to be able to kind of point out like the parts that were altered for, sure. for TV. Sure. Um, but... This movie, I mean, one of the one of the things that we talked about doing for this episode and ultimately discarded because it is too similar to this was uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they're doing kind of the same thing. Like they're taking a. Um, it's, it's a modern sensibility. Yes. Yeah. And um. Marie Antoinette is a little bit different because that movie is a little bit more rehabbing. <laughs> <laughs> a a woman from history that 
is gets kind gets maligned for various reasons. Ca- Although Ca- Catherine the Catherine the Great does carry around the rumor of the horse. There is the rumor of the horse, uh, <laughs> and also the actual uh, penis chair. Um, but a a beautiful carved chair covered in phalluses. Um, Wiki it. Uh, but like yeah one of them gets the name the great after their name and the other one famously got her head cut off so one of them had needed more rehabbing than the other yeah (laughs) um but even so like this is a this is a show that positions Catherine as like she's young she's energetic she's colorful the costuming in this show is like like one of her great one of her great gowns is the last one she wears, which is this kind of acid hot pink. Mm-hmm. Um, that felt so much like Marie Antoinette. Yeah. And I, again, I don't know if these have roots in actual, um, like, I, I don't know if that was a style or a color that was an actual use in mm-hmm. Russia, but it looks so modern that if it was, I kind of commend them on how forward thinking their, their fashion was. <laughs> Well, it, uh, and yeah, go and ahead. it has a modern soundtrack. Yes, yes. So um, again, it is using it is using modern music to, you know, lead the audience uh, to making a specific kind of connection with these characters. Yes, and and as you were saying earlier, like it is formatted through a like a, a TV drama aesthetic, or like you know relationship uh angles as it were um so it's all it's that like it's that small little court intrigue told in a soapy kind of way that we all totally get and know um and then sort of dialed up and played with like like it's it's dialed up to to 11 so even though like it is a soap opera or whatever um but it's so much of that that it becomes like farce almost uh mm-hmm. which is which is hitting that that tone like that intentional anachronistic tone um yeah yeah so i guess anything else we want to cover i i would say that something we've talked about with both of these is that they're both fun and yes. i think that that helps a lot because like when we think of historical historical dramas or historical epics they have a tendency in the public consciousness and in reality to be considered sort of like dour or like like either like ridley scott like intense and serious but also gray and blue and muted and and intense and violent and you know like if it's fun it's fun because it's violent and epic not because it's just sort of like frothy and fun um and like witty and yeah clever like like the great works because of the language um and you would never say that about a a historical epic in anything in any other context um so it's like i think that that is a big part of these sort of like tonally anachronistic shows where where because what they're trying to do is get us to like get in the headspace of the characters the way they do it has that like frisson of of you know oh they're playing queen even though it's the middle ages or like oh they're playing new order even though it's um ancien regime france uh and so like that both that like that historical frisson in our minds and the sense of like i love new order uh just makes them (laughs) it makes them very fun to to watch and consume um which i think is nice 
it's it's a nice change of pace from the normal like historical drama, uh, which isn't fun for many people. <laughs> also, this and this is the same kind of deal, but it makes them accessible, mm-hmm. and it makes them something that like again, I I don't know how. I don't know how much more I can emphasize like I love a show or a a story or something that inspires me to go and learn more about the thing. Like you like the stuff that deep dives the wiki. Like like that that leads you down the wiki. Sorry. I mean that, that leads you down a wiki rabbit hole. Yeah. I like the stuff that makes me want to go wiki deep diving. Like it itself doesn't need to be the wiki deep dive. Right. But I love something that says, Hey, if you like this, like, check out how crazy the real story was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that both of these do that in different ways. Um, and yeah, again, just make stuff really, really fun. Like, historical fiction doesn't have to be dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that, um, I mean, that well, seems like a pretty good place to end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that is going to do it for us for this episode. Um, we will be back in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about the new Matrix movie. Uh, and we are going to do so in the context of all of the Matrix things. So the matrices, one might even the say. matrices. Yes. <laughs> your your duty, should you decide to accept it, um, is to view the matrix uh one through three and the animatrix if you have the time and the inclination uh and also uh the fourth matrix the name of which resurrection matrix resurrection yeah matrix resurrection which you know hopefully will explain (laughs) why neo isn't spoiler (laughs) alert super dead (laughs) um i Um, i really really wish i could in good faith make a like take the red pill to join us or take the blue pill to stay uh what in in the in the computer world but the friggin men's rights guys have taken the red pill terminology away from us i so i am and we're truly, gonna we're gonna get into it i know <laughs> but, oh yeah no i am truly interested to see how um i believe this is lana wachowski's i think you're right project yes how she says f you to those people because i feel like there has to be some kind of reclamation of the pill symbolism. Yeah. Like, yeah, she's, she's too clever of a filmmaker to let that one lie. But yeah. anyway, we'll get into it next time. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media at all the places at DYDYH podcast. Uh, you can listen to our sister show, love ya, which uh, releases on alternating weeks from this one. That is a show where I and Marin Pete's wife watch a rom-com or a teen movie. And then we talk about it. We are deep into our Christmas slate at the moment. We just did a 2006 teen shenanigans comedy called Unaccompanied Minors. Which neither of you liked for different reasons, and it's a really good episode because of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And our next episode will be on the brand new Netflix movie, A Castle for Christmas, starring Brooke Shields and Carrie Elwes. Which I'm just going to guess you will both like quite a bit uh, based on... (laughs) For different reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe for the same reason. Yeah, probably. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Magical Martha. Uh, I also write a newsletter every once in a while at tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, my last issue was about all of the 
horror movies that I watched in October. My next issue will probably be about all of the holiday movies that I watched up until Christmas. <laughs> uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Uh, yeah. I, I also like I, I a lot of Milwaukee stuff because I live in Milwaukee. So, you know, retweeting the, the good local journalists here. Uh, am I missing anything? I don't think so. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, uh, find us on podcatchers and uh, give us a give us a five star review and tell other people about us because, you know, that's always a homework assignment. Yes, to all of that. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in a couple of weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Nice. Good episode. Yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say, it's not going to be super long, but I thought we had a good conversation.